Welcome to episode 170 of Control the Controllables. And I hope everyone is well, wherever you are in the world. And for those of you that have been dealing with the heat wave of the last week or so, and that was me as I was back in the UK with my son at a, a Tennis Europe event in Repton. And, whoa, it was brutal, the temperatures. It's all anyone was really talking about, but I, I understand why, because there was nowhere to go. It, it was 33, 34 degrees in the morning, and it only got hotter as the day went on. But finding air, air conditioning was not so easy, but it was a great event, and I just want to firstly say a big thank you to the number of people that just popped up to me and, and, and asked me if I was Dan from Control the Controllables. It's great to know and put faces to, to you that are listening to the podcast. So thank you for that. That really, really made my week and I hope everyone is enjoying the episodes as we continue to bring them to you. And today we have the ATP Coach of the Year 2017. He plays a brand of tennis that is exceptionally scary to play against when he's in the correct frame of mind and there's nobody that nobody on any real surface that is scary for him and neville godwin he was my coach for for a few months and he was you know one of the best coaches i worked with you know he started coaching a few of us at the at the LTA when we were we were at queens club as he finished his playing career and a fantastic playing career he had as well he won an atp to a title in newport he was as high as 90 in the world in singles 57 in the world in doubles had a great junior record as well making three doubles grand slam five Finals, and then he went on in his coaching career as well as coaching Dan Kiernan. He coached some even bigger names in Kevin Anderson and helped him get to almost the very top of the game. He then worked with, and I don't know if many of you will remember, Ayung Chung, who was was looking for greatness. You know, he was playing an amazing match against Novak Djokovic a few years ago at the Australian Open, and unfortunately, has had a lot of injuries to deal with. He spent a lot of time with him. And then recently, and when we had the chat, he was Riley Opelka's coach. Sadly, as in the world of tennis, this happens since our chat. And I hope not because of the chat, but over the grass court season, as that came to the end, Riley Opelka didn't quite get the results he wanted. And that has resulted in a change for himself. So Neville is currently not working with Riley, but he has been over the last few months. It's a great conversation. He's a down-to-earth guy. He's got lots of knowledge at the game as a player, but also as a coach. And I'm sure you guys are going to love it. So enjoy Neville Godwin. Neville Godwin, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Really good. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me on the show. 170 episodes in. It's it's along those lines, but I'm not sure if you're my first ATP coach of the year. Did <laughs> 2017. Did, exactly. Did Faku Lagones win coach of the year last year? He sure did. He got last year. He won 2021. Yeah. Oh, uh, right, not. Rightly so. Cam had a fantastic year and he's, they, they're a fantastic team and they, they've really done a good job. And what about Nick Boletari? Has he won one? No. He doesn't qualify because he's not, he's not an ATP coach. <laughs> oh, is that right? So, I see. Yeah. You, must, 
So you're my second, you're my second ATP coach of the year. You're currently in, I believe, a sunny UK. Everyone's telling me the weather's nice. Kind of heat wave, exactly. With the giant that is Riley Opelka, you know, exciting career ahead and, and a great, a great player to be working with on the back of your success with Kevin Anderson and also Chung, who I'd like to get into him a little bit later. But my, my first question, Nev, there's an exhibition event. It's known as our greatest tournament in our industry, in our sport. We all love it. From a coaching point of view and on, as a player, does it mean any less now that it doesn't have ATP points? Great question. And just being around the, the guys the last week or so, uh, particularly now on the grass, um, there's still a desire. There's a massive desire of the guys. Uh, I, I, I thought that more guys that potentially didn't need that, you know, maybe we look, we look at like that didn't need the money who definitely wouldn't like to play on grass and where sort of like a, a second or a third round would be a, a maximum result for them. There's a bunch of those kind of guys, and I'd rather not use names, obviously. Absolutely. Um, that that are that are playing, and I mean, uh, and I'm a little bit taken aback by it because you know the t the guys tend to generally, I don't want to say complain, but uh, the the theory the the feeling is, is that there's too much tennis, and I, I think I think this would have given a lot of guys uh, a great time to prove a point for one, you know, uh, back the Russian players. And it also would have been a, another time for them to sort of say, okay, well, this is, this gives me a great opportunity to take three or four weeks out of the season and, uh, and rest up and really prepare. Because after this, you know, once you start in the U S summer, it goes all the way through the U S open. Then there's Davis cup literally right after followed by labor cup for some followed by trip to, to Asia, followed by trip back to Europe. Um, there's a lot of tennis still going in the season. So this would have been a sort of a natural window to take a breather um i don't really I'm, I'm i'm kind of neutral on whether guys should or should not be playing but yeah. i'm surprised at how many are playing what your own personal feeling when the announcement was made were you surprised were you were you angry frustrated which side of that did you fall on and has that changed now you've had time to reflect um look i i'm i'm i grew up in apartheid south africa so you know possibly I'm fr uh, slightly more qualified to, to comment on it. Yeah. And we, we were not allowed to compete as a nation. However, we were allowed to compete as individuals because, you know, obviously you don't want to have people representing a particular regime. However, as individuals, I don't feel like you are, you know, you, as an individual, you're representing yourself. I don't think it was very fair. And, and, and not only on the, the Russians and Belarusians or the people who are, who are not permitted to compete. It's also very unfair on the people that had a good result last year at Wimbledon who are just automatically going to be losing those points with no, no opportunity to defend them. Do you think it was the right decision of the ATP to fire back? And I guess use, they almost, all, that, was their, that was their play, wasn't it? That was their, almost their only take back control play. Do you think that was the right? Yeah, decision? I think I think I think it really was the only ace up their sleeve that they had. They they didn't really have you know they can't force players to not play. Um, so that there was their only real play that they had. Could it have been 
done in a better way. I don't know the exact ins and outs of it. Uh, I'm sure there was a lot more things at play than what we, we realized. However, you know, I, I, my personal preference would have been to play for points and just give the, the players that are not allowed to play a 52-week sort of uh, uh, leave of absence that, that they, those points from 2021 were allowed to stay on for one more year. I think there would have been a much more fair way across the board to handle it. And what happens next? Because as you alluded to, 170 guests on this podcast, there's often been quite a big topic, the fractures of tennis, the seven different governing bodies that aren't necessarily married up, which, which for the sport can cause problems. So something like this, I know the US Open came out a few days ago and said, we're going to allow everybody to play. So it seems like nobody's really on the same wavelength. So where, where does this go next? Well, you're spot on. And, uh, you know, even so much as this is the first year, 2022, where the grandstands have actually all agreed on a, you know, where to have a tiebreaker in the fifth set for the men and women. You know, this is the first year, which is kind of ridiculous. We've had three situations, that if to my, my knowledge, where matches have gone crazy long in the history of tennis. And now we're, we're all of a sudden shutting down exciting matches of 10-8 or 12-10 or 14-12, you know, all the drama of that. Uh, that creates drama. That's what people want to see. We've had three situations that have gone crazy long, and, and that's about it, it for, that, that's, you know, we're changing the whole scoring system, which to me doesn't really make a lot of sense. And, and you were sat in the box, I believe, for one of those matches? No, no, no. I, I, I Fortunately or unfortunately, I was not because ah, I stopped right. working with Kevin in 2017 and he his final run was in 2018. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. But, so I was not on that for that one. But it's intriguing. I, I mean, I think it's, a great, it's great to watch. Because what I was going to ask you was, how did that affect him then for the final? Yeah. And I mean, I, I know him and I know him well enough to know that this, it's pretty close to impossible to turn to turn the ship around on off to something like that, you know. So he obviously would have had a lot of treatment, but just, just it, it didn't really have an up. He, he he could get well enough to to play, but I don't think he was ever in with a, a real ch- chance of winning that match. But is that final. not is that not the argument though? Because if we take the Isner Mahout match, sure. I, I mean Isner Isner in the next round. If you if you're a gambling person <laughs> and you want to put some money on somebody that was the match put to it on the other guy yeah i mean he couldn't move he couldn't no he, he, he was done yeah so yes you can argue that but i mean you've had two of those that's the only two that we've ever had i mean apart from if i'm if i go back to i think it was about 2005 or six when andy andy roddick played alanawi in australia and it was i think 1917 or 2018 or something now, I can't think of any matches, even though were even as long as those three, you know. So you've got Isna Mahout, Isna Anderson, and uh, Roddick against Elanawi. Those are the only three I can think of. And, and how many matches have we had in Grand Slams, you know, the last 130 years? Yeah. No, so, I, 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 you know, it's just, it's just, it's just curious to me but that they do it. So but getting back to your original question to, as to where are we going now in, in uh, tennis, uh, it's it's kind of feels like it's good. golf. Uh, you know they've kind of uh, thrown some 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 dollars at at a different program. Tennis, I don't think can go that way purely because I don't think we have enough players. 
you know, I think golf has way more players in terms of they have the, the PGA Tour, they have the European Tour, they have the Sunshine Tour, they have the Asian Tour, they have the Corn Ferry Tour, they have, they have many more tours. Whereas tennis, we've got one tour. You know, if you start taking guys away from, from the ATP Tour, I think we're going to be left with a bit of a diluted product. But would that not? I mean, we saw the the Dutch guy Tim Tim van Ruyten won the ATP event ranked two two five. Right. But if there was, if there was two tours, would would you not then see a growth in in level because all of a sudden you've maybe got five hundred or six hundred tennis players that are making a living rather than two hundred. Yeah, and you make a good point, and I would, I, would, I definitely think that there, we should have more. Just do we have enough? I mean, we, we're complaining always now about do we have enough? We, there is enough money in the sport, but is it being utilized correctly? I mean, we've got this big, let's go with the in, inverted commas, uh, exhibition, and that are paying a record record prize money. I mean, it's, it's just, it kind of begs belief, and it's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? Maybe me and you can get our rackets put out back out, Nev. You know, if there was another two, we could, uh, we take the Saudi, wouldn't we? We play in the yeah, Saudi I, I tour. Yeah, I think there's been a, there's been a lot of tennis players signing up for the Saudi uh, tennis tour that hasn't materialized. <laughs> so, and a lot of them are probably in Tunisia, or Egypt, right now. I would yeah, quite possibly. Being... Yeah, quite possibly. <clears throat> but I I ask this question, Nev, to everybody that comes on. Because what interests me, and I guess what interested me when I set this podcast up was, surely there's lots of different stories out there. You know, there's there's many different ways that you can go with the tennis, get into tennis, use tennis. You know, I've had agents, journalists, physios, tennis coaches, you know, people that have used tennis to go into another aspect. However, the common the common story has been... Parents were tennis coaches, took me down to the local club, started playing tennis from a young age, and then got in, enrolled in the sport, almost just through osmosis or, or the way that it goes. And there seems to be very few stories of people that found the sport away from that. So I'm going to ask you the same question. Are you different? Or are, you, are you one of the many? Uh, that's how I learned the game. I've got two sons and uh, I feel like Europe will always be fine in that, that regard because the club scene in Europe is so, so strong. Uh, and, and it's a very common thing on, a, on the weekend to go to the club and, you know, we're going to play tennis, we're going to play paddle, we're going to uh, have a bite to eat, we're going to swim, we're going to do whatever it takes. Whereas in a lot of other, and in the USA, obviously, they have a big country club sort of culture as well. Uh, so, so countries like South Africa and I think in Australia as well, I think they're just struggling a little bit more. Um, so your question was, am I a product of someone going down to the, the club? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I was the youngest of three kids. Uh, I was just had to, and I, I was very fortunate. I grew up in South Africa in the eighties was not uncommon to have a tennis court in, in your, at your house. Didn't mean we, we were definitely not wealthy. Uh, very much middle class, um, but we just have we had a lot of space. So I grew up the youngest of three boys, and uh, basically, my father built an extra extension on the practice wall. And uh, if I wasn't good enough, my brothers wouldn't allow me to be on the court. So I had to put in a lot of extra time uh, in practice, and you know, very very lucky. And often, often you hear the story of 
someone being successful in sport is often the young younger of the of a of a group of children. Absolutely. So you you had parents that were involved in tennis. You were a third child. Right. Yeah. My father was actually a coach, but that wasn't his full time job. He okay. he coached it on the side, and yeah, I mean I've. I fell in love with tennis and uh, I, I, it was one of those things that I, I probably didn't love it that much, uh, you know, when I started competing more, but I was just happened to, I guess, one of the things, if you, if you're good at it, you, there's a natural liking of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the third bit, so about having that, but then having brothers, the third bit is, and I've had quite a few South Africans from your era that have been on the podcast and Coming from that era, and you've touched on it already, the Partick times, it seems like it, it also developed some pretty tough characters, you know, having gone through that period. Would you attribute any of your successes as a tennis player, as a character, to coming through that period? Definitely, because we, we I mean, I'm sure you've explored the, you know, how we grew up, you know, we were, we, we lived an amazing life not out of choice you know we didn't know what was going on in a lot of a lot of the time we didn't know the prejudices that were happening it was just part of our lives growing up it was just not something we were we kind of were aware of it but not the the depth of it so yeah. um by that we I mean because we had such heavy sanctions uh placed on us we didn't have access to great equipment we didn't have access to amazing books or i mean and, and in those days we didn't have there wasn't a lot of TV, you know, we could watch TV, but like you get Wimbledon, Roland Garros, you know, and US Open if you're lucky. So you had to figure things out for yourself. And I think that's definitely something that's helped me in my coaching career, as well as my playing career, but probably more in my coaching career, that having to have had to think and figure things out for myself, I, th I think it's helped me being able to, to communicate to the subject, what I'm actually trying to say and why I'm trying to say something, you know, and uh, that's because we, you know, we, there was no, I mean, if I got a, a coaching session once a week, I was lucky, uh, you know, and you, based on that, you, we, you, you, you practice, you went down to your mate's house and you just designed a game and you played a get, you played some games and, you know, you didn't always play sets or matches and you had to figure out ways that you were going to get better and then, and go from there. So it's, it's, it's definitely something that's helped me in my, in particularly in my coaching career. But with your playing career, you were very good as a junior and, mm -hmm. you, and you played the Grand Slams, I believe made three doubles finals of Grand Slams. Yep. You know, uh, so two finals and a win, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so how did you compete globally? Because I guess it's one, it's one thing to, to have that and then maybe rise within your country. But mm -hmm. the fact that you're, you got to the level where you are competing at the highest junior level there is in Grand Slams. How, how was that journey? You must have, you must have got your volume somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I think we were, we were pretty lucky because there was actually quite a bit of money in tennis in South Africa at that time. We had some really good events. Um, and so there, there were some sponsorships to, to grow tennis in the country. I mean, you look, the guys born sort of between, let's go between 67, 68, 1967, 68, all the way through till about 1972. They had a lot. There was a lot of tournaments. There was a lot of, uh, you know, we had a South African Open. 
and there was a lot of money being put into the game to to run squads, national squads, national training squads, and to travel with coaches as as a group. Uh, I was very fortunate. I was born in 1975. I caught the very tail end of it. Um, I didn't get, unfortunately, get the the benefit of the tournaments, but I got the benefit of the coaching and the training. Um, and I was lucky that the, my very first trip overseas was actually when I was 12 years old to go play Orange Bowl. And I had a pretty decent amount of success in that trip to kind of take me into a different thought process, uh, if I could think of it in that way, in terms of like, oh, okay, I, th- I think I came third in the Orange Bowl, I lost in the semifinals, you know, as a 12-year-old. And yeah. that kind of made me realize, okay, well, I'm, I'm actually a global player. I'm not a national player. And that's kind of, I was fortunate enough to every year to be able to, to, to gauge myself on international level by going back to Florida every year to play an orange ball or go to Europe or to play on clay or something like that. And I think that was something that really helped me because I, I, I kind of always knew already, even from a young age that I was at least good enough in my age internationally. And given that success as a junior, given that you were you were right there with with the best in the world in your age groups, do you look at number ninety in the world? I believe was your highest singles ranking, fifty seven in doubles. Absolutely, I look at that as a success. Do you reflect and look at that as a success from where you were? Um. Yeah, I mean, I had a I had a fairly complex career because uh, I I kind of got left out in the cold at 18 years old. Uh, you know, obviously that's when South Africa became uh, apartheid laws ended, and there were, there was no more financial help from us. So then I, I kind of for two three years I was kind of out in the wilderness a little bit, kind of really finding my own way with not much help, not much uh, assistance from training with other guys. Um, the other South Africans that were significantly older than me were, they did an unbelievable job really by helping me as much as they could. Um, 90, yes, it was good, but I think if I'd had someone with me more often, I think I would have been, had more lofty goals, uh, you know, yeah. kind of like the, the, the top hundred goal. I mean, and I achieved it when I was, I think I was 21 and then I achieved it again later on in my career, but I, it was a little bit too stop start. There wasn't enough consistency. Yeah, I think I could have had a better career if I had more consistency and I'd had someone with me more often of the more of the time, you know, to bounce ideas off of, to keep me on the, the straight and narrow, if you like, and, and yeah. be disciplined and pick better schedules, <clears throat> etc. So if you had your your journey again, what would you do different? I at that stage, I I probably would have gone to college in the US. I think that would okay. have uh, I think that would have really helped me a lot. Uh at, at 18, I was, I, I shouldn't, I don't want to say I was very good, but I was already sort of like 250 in the world and uh, in, in ATP. Um, but I wasn't, I hadn't learned enough about the game yet. You know, I, I was a little bit one dimensional, didn't really, I didn't want to play on clay, didn't know how to play on clay, um, you know, hadn't spent enough time working on my body. So I, I, I don't think I would have gone to college for four years, but probably yeah. two years. And I think that would have been really good for me just to get a ton more data uh, in, of matches under my belt. I think that would have been really good for me. I think that's amazing for listeners to hear because you were, you were 250 in the world. 
two years later, you were 90 in the world, yet yeah. you still reflect that you should have gone to college. Yeah, and also because, you know, by the, one of the also reasons was I was on a tour and I didn't get that sort of... Uh, I, I was playing tennis having the sensation that I'd missed out on things. You know, and I think if I'd gone to college, I would have, you know, I think you, you yourself went to college. So, you know, I would have had a good time. I would have known when to party, when to be serious. And I would have got the, the, the enough data of my system under my system. And so kind of by the time I got to 25, 26 as a professional, I was completely cooked. I, I, I was exhausted. Yeah. And I mean, now you see guys traveling 33, 34, 35, 36 years old is pretty normal. You know, and I mean, I was I think I stopped playing when I was 27 or 28. So I, I, I really believe that if I'd gone those extra couple of years to college, that may have given me some more longevity on the, other, on the other side of my career. That's kind of more what I'm alluding to. And how does, obviously, we know you as ATP Coach of the Year with Kevin Anderson. So you had a great journey with Kevin. He was a college guy. And did he reflect very positively on his college time? Absolutely, because, I mean, Kevin will be the first person to tell you that he actually was not that good a junior, you know, and he yeah. had to really go and learn his trade and at college and get out there and practice. And look, I think the college system has changed a little bit. Uh, I don't know if they play as many matches as they did before, and there's obviously some, some new rules involved. Yeah. But uh, I still believe that just – I think they're going a little bit over the top with the, the celebrations and the – you know, how they're carrying on in courts and they're not, they're not playing sort of, it's not really, it's, it's still matches, but it's not really that, it's not close enough to tour level matches, you know, with all the people screaming and shouting and coaching and stuff. It's, it's I think it's gone a little bit too far. And yeah, that's uh, a good point. Yeah. Guys kind of come out of college and they go on the tour and they, they just, they're like, holy cow, this is just, it's nearly too different, you know? Mm. So they need to really have a think about that and maybe try to pull that back a little bit if they can. I, I don't know how they would. But, uh, you know, of course they're having fun, but a lot of guys go to college with the, with the intent of playing professional afterwards. So that, that could be one thing to, for them to consider. Well, I, I couldn't do it, if I'm honest, after when I came out of college, and that was, what, 20 years ago. So I remember playing a Futures in Glasgow on, right. the, on the far court. People are watching through the glass four right. courts away. And I, I remember thinking, what the hell is this? How, yeah, how, how do I get myself going? Exactly, because you're so used to, you know, being pumped up and, and playing for a team. Yeah, all of those so, things. And I mean, and, and, and I don't know, I'm sure you've seen some of the, the latest uh, social media footage of it. I mean, the guys are going absolutely crazy. crazy. And I think it's, it's, too, it's, it's a little bit too much. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's a point I hadn't thought of before. And I think it's a really good point. And I think it's... Yeah. A good reflection. Moving you into, I know before and when we had a little chat, you you said something around the modern the modern game, you know, and you're someone who now have been around the sport for 35 years at an international level. Two questions. One, what hasn't changed? So, is there anything in the game? that 35 years ago, it was there. And in 2022, it's still there. I'll get to the second question after. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you still have to have skills. You, you, actually, you, you actually have to have skills. 
and you have to you have to have a, a very good serve. You cannot you cannot compete now without a, a good serve, and you have to understand yourself how, what you need to do to win. And I think the guys that uh, that are having a lot of success, they understand their game, they understand their brand, and they are that hasn't changed. They they know what they're doing and how they want to impose themselves on a match, and they're just going to go out and do it. And what has changed? What's the modern day tennis, and what's the biggest things that have changed in the last five, ten, fifteen years? So you're dealing with uh, bigger athletes overall would be my would be my my number one thing. Uh, guys, I mean. If I go back to when I played, you know, I always joke and I say Todd Martin was sort of six foot five and he was like the big monster guy. I mean, six foot five is not really even big now. You know, it's kind of fractionally above normal, uh, you know, and, and guys are hitting the ball. They're hitting the ball unbelievably hard. They're training. They're really doing a good job of taking care of their bodies. They are working incredibly hard at the gym. They, I mean, the, the gyms on site, the gyms and the hotels are just always busy. Guys are really working hard. The, because the, they are making more money, they can afford to invest more in themselves. They, uh, there's a ton of physios that travel on the, on the tour. You know, guys will still always be injured, but they, they at least are, I think, the biggest thing that's changed is, and we just spoke about it previously, is that guys didn't really used to play much past 30 years old. Yeah. And I think now uh, you, you'd kind of, you, you wouldn't see anyone retiring before they're sort of 30 years old. And that's quite a it's quite a significant change. Do you think we're we're getting similar to basketball? I guess basketball. Let me explain that question. But basketball. If I go back to me watching in college again twenty years ago, your Michael Jordans seemed small on the court. Right. Yeah, he was six foot seven. I was Correct. Six, yeah, eight, six, 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 seven, something seven, like that. Yeah. yeah. And then, obviously, your big guys were plus seven foot. And then you would have an Allen Iverson who seemed really small, and he was six foot or 5'11". Right. You know, and you'd get the odd absolute freaks who were like five foot seven, five foot eight. Right. Do you think tennis is going that way, certainly on the men's side, where you're six eight, six nine, six tens are the norm, and you need to be exceptional to be a Diego Schwartzman, or do you think the nature of lower center of gravity movement that some of the small guys have will always mean there's a place for them? I think that there, there will always be a place for the small guys. Will they ever become the norm that we get six, eight, six, nine, seven foot? I don't think so. But what is crazy is you've got these guys at this, let's say, really big size that actually are they can really move. I mean, if you had to pick C. Riley doing a 40 yard dash, uh, people would not, people with eyes would fall out of their head as to how fast he actually is. But then it makes perfect sense because if he's got fast twitch muscles, you know, he is going to be fast because if he runs 40 yards and the normal person does it in uh, 14, 15 steps, he's doing it in 10 to 11 steps. So of course he's going to be fast. I mean, if you look at the science behind the hundred meters, Usain Bolt really changed that because it's something like, the the average guy who's I think I think they said the average height for a sprint is five ten, and he's taking I think it's 40, 43 or forty four steps for for a hundred meter dash. 
you know, Bolt's coming in at 6'3", 6'4", and he's doing it in 41 steps. So essentially he's running a race that is two to three steps less yeah. than everybody else. Yeah. So uh, there always will be a place because guys, uh, as you know, Diego Schwarzman is only 5'7", but he's incredibly strong. He has to be an incredibly good ball striker. And, and I think the equipment is allowing that now. You know, there's the, with the advent of strings, you know, particularly Luxalon coming in and, and making a poly string, uh, guys are, are able to swing so much harder now at every ball, which is something that was not on the table sort of 25 years ago. The, the examples you gave there, though, of big guys, 40 meters, 100 meters, <laughs> isn't necessarily relevant to the movement and the changing of direction on the tennis court, surely these big guys and you have a great eye and position on this. Kevin Anderson, I believe six foot nine. Riley yeah, six Opelka. eight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Riley, seven foot. So just oh. around there somewhere. Let's go. So what are those guys doing to enable them to, to move in a, in an agile directional change sport? Because I hear, and I've not seen it myself, but I hear, Riley is a really good mover on the tennis court and he's put a lot of work into it. I mean, he, he, he works incredibly hard. I mean, like just this week as an example, because um, obviously with Wimbledon being, <laughs> the joke is Wimbledon is pointless this year, you know? <laughs> so it's uh, uh, guys are actually starting to put in the volume of work now sort of for the U S summer and for the rest of the season. So, I mean, he, he, he would have done, I think he's done, two or three weight sessions and he lifts pretty big numbers. He would have done, he did a track session yesterday and he would have done two, two footwork sessions this week. So as long as well as uh, upper body strength and as well as uh, tennis practice itself. And would that not be normal 10 days? No, probably not before a grand slam because you wouldn't want to be fatigued in any way, you know? So uh, getting back to the original question, so he's working really, really hard on on tiny little muscle groups to help him be more agile, more flexible, more uh, being able to move more in a tiny space. Working with you, you, not that it's a bad thing, but because I've actually probably had a similar thing at a much lower level to yourself, that the last three or four players I've worked with. Mm-hmm. that have got to 250, 380 P have all been quite big men, quite right. big, big, quite big men who, who statistically are looking to hold serve 90% of games or more, you know, that kind of, that way, that way of playing, which your last three players have been two very big men. <laughs> right. And then, and then you've had a, a smaller ball striker, how much do you have to adjust the way that you coach when we're looking at such different identities and physical makeups? Well, the first, the first thing for me is always to try and learn my subject, to try and learn about the player, learn what, how they actually want to play. You know, and and uh, it's often you see coaches and you're, you're coaching and you're doing a really good job and people will try kind of, Coaches try to put their own stamp on a player, yeah. you know, and I think it's very, very important to, it's actually, it's, a, it's always, in my opinion, a player led relationship. Yeah. Uh, um, and the player 
is the one that's on the tennis court, on the match court, and they're the one making decisions. They're the ones, um, you know, executing something that they are comfortable executing. And they've, or, they're the only person that's, that's been at every single one of their matches. So they have way more data than we could possibly have. Yeah. And it, it's actually very important that they are playing in a way that they are comfortable playing. It, it took me, it took me sort of the first two, three, four, five, six months. It's, it's kind of like a learning period because, you know, you could go in the first two months and have some great results and things are all great, but that's not really that accurate because they've, kind of doing things that they've already been doing. So you need to figure that out. And then when, when things, when they need to change, they need to change surfaces, they need to change training regimen, then maybe have a dealing with a little injury or something. Then you see how they, they handle it, etc. you know, and, and you have to be flexible in your approach so that they can, you allow them to, to free up and play the way that they want to play. And then obviously you would, by observing, you sort of start, you start seeing, well, this is a pattern that is not good for us, or this is a pattern that is good for us. And, and you can work sort of go deeper into, into, into that way of analyzing things. But do you not, as a, as a coach, it feels like we're in a world of where well, we are instant gratification world. Mm-hmm. And these young tennis players are in particular, but these tennis players, they have agents. They often have highly involved tennis parents they, they often have quite a, a big team around them that are demanding results for not always the right reason, you know, demanding results. Absolutely. To hit the targets of the sponsor, to demanding results for... So not all coaches are afforded that period of, of, of time to do that. Is, yeah. So, so is that something not just in your own personal experience, but in terms of your experience on the tour, is that something that you see? And then are coaches then more reactive to let's get some quick wins to have an impact, to give me my job or rather than looking at the bigger picture and saying for you to, have your career and win on a longer period. This is the this is the way that I observe and feel that yeah. you need to I mean and identity. I think I think to answer your question, the first sort of two, three months are sort of are kind of more trial period, if you like. And yeah. I think it's important it's important to to be like that. So whereby you're learning from the player as well as they are learning from you. And you're seeing how well how do we communicate? Do do, do our communication styles match? Do do our, uh, our objectives line up? Do you know where, uh, when, the, when the agent first, first approached you, you know, it's important to have a, an honest discussion and say, you know, I'm, I'm not the guy. If you want me to come in and change things and do things like this and that, it's very important to understand your own skill set and your own, you know, uh, what, you got, what you bring to the table. And, you know, I've been very fortunate in the, the players that I've worked with are, they they have they all have very high tennis IQs and they trust their own IQs and it's something I really encourage a lot and um, you know and they they just kind of want another set of eyes you know and and I think that's it's an important and another opinion and someone that's going to understand sort of what they're going through and and uh, I think I, I I definitely do not believe that you have to have been a really a, a good player to be a good coach but if you were a good player and you can communicate, I definitely think that that helps a lot. 
And there's a lot of talk around more tennis players making money from the sport. Mm -hmm. So that's like, it's obviously a hot topic. And once you get past a certain threshold, it it rises significantly. You know, once Mm -hmm. you've, yet having a coach on, and, you know, I go back to the day that I was fortunate to be on court with you when you were working at the LTA. If we take a coach working with a top 20, top 30 player, I would imagine there's a lot of, there's a, there's, a, there's a fair, decent wage that goes with that. If you're a coach that's working with someone who's 300 in the world, yep. you're probably paying to coach them. You know, <laughs> you're just about, yeah. So, so in terms of coaching careers and and how we make it a more desirable job to have, right? How how do we go about that in in the coaching so, world? Excellent, excellent question. Because uh, I've been so with there is a program on the ATP tour. It's called the ATP Coach Program, and that is essentially how. Uh, it's got about, I think, about 200 members on. So, for example, yeah. Facundo Lagones is on the ATP coach program, Kieran Forster. And it's, it's pretty strictly monitored. You have to have been to a significant amount of tournaments as a, as a coach. Yeah. Uh, or if you were a player, you know, there's a certain criteria that is. And we, the, the main uh, objective of this program is to really try highlight more, bring the coaches more into the frame of things. And, uh, you know, so for example, I'm not sure if you're aware, but coaching is actually going to be allowed on the ATP tour. Okay. So, you know, we said, I'm going to be sitting on the side of the court. I've got ATP, ATP coach cap on and I'll be able to coach meaning, but meaning communicate with my player. It's a one-way communication, so he's not allowed to ask me questions and stuff. I'm allowed to oh, communicate okay. with him, and obviously only while he's on the same side as me. So this is something that we've been pushing hard for for the better part of five years because we, we honestly do not believe that our brand as professional coaches is being recognized enough. And I think this is a major step in the development of coaches uh, and I think once people see how much value a coach can potentially have on a match, I think this is going to be a, a really uh, positive move for coaches overall, you know, to see where, where, how it actually filters down into tennis. I mean, we all know the, you know, in junior tennis, if you're going to allow coaching, it's going to be, it could potentially be quite a circus, you know, but uh, just to see the credit that coaches actually would get, because I don't think, you know, of all the professional sports, our you know uh, tennis coaches have never really been top of the pile. I mean, you look at soccer, you look at rugby, <coughs> you look at all other sports, and coaches get so much credit, whereas in tennis they get very little credit, or even recognition is maybe a better word. And how much? How much do you think you can influence a match? And Give us an example of how you feel you could. Um, I, I, w- I would say it's, so we, we would talk about in, in any match, uh, you know, and, and, and coaches always talk about this and players always talk about this. Any match is only defined by maybe f- probably less than five points for, for a, a, a good tennis match, I would say, you know. Um, and if you can help your player win two or three more points or lock into a different pattern, 
for two or three more points, if that's going to win three or four more matches in a year, that's a lot. Because whenever those matches are, you know, instead of losing, let's say, second round of a 500, you potentially win one more match. And then maybe anything can happen after that. You get a good draw. Someone hurts himself. Someone pulls out. You know, anything can happen after that. So, it, it, and as we know, uh, tennis is a very fickle sport where confidence is earned, not given, and it cannot be sold. And, uh, you know, players are pretty fickle in terms of uh, if they're winning matches, they're playing well. If they're, if they're losing, they're playing badly. When, now, we as coaches, we know that that's not actually always the truth. And, uh, you know, if, if you can get a player through a match to win, perhaps there's, there's a level of confidence that will now grow that can now affect him positively for the next week, months, whatever. And, and the next question along the same lines, Nev, not just specific to you, but it might be. Your sole or a tennis coach's sole income is coaching a player. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's player-led. However, you will have strong opinions, someone who's been in the game for so long. If you go against the player, potentially you're losing your job, losing your security, losing your, your wage. Now, someone with the record you've gotten and the longevity you've now had, maybe you've got confidence that that's not going to be an issue. But let's say a young coach is coming in. It's their first opportunity to coach on the ATP tour. This seems like there's very little security for coaches is what I'm trying to get at. Sure. Because so the, yeah. you, can get, you can easily get dropped out. And then it's like, well, why the hell did I tell? Why did I tell Riley? that he needs to cover his second serve a bit more because just lost my bloody job, you know, yeah. so uh, whatever it might be. Yeah, so no, good question. And obviously, the most important thing is uh, have a good uh, deal in place, you know, have a, as many uh, situations that you can put in your agreement, put them in. Uh, secondly, you have to know your subject, you know, just get really take the time and get to know your player get to know what, what, what information they actually want on the, on the match court. You know, what uh, information is useful to them, what information is not useful. Because you, me as a player, could, could have required completely different information to what you as a player would want. So some players play on, on instinct, some players play on statistics. And it's, it's actually unimportant what the coach wants. It's, it's, it's only important what the player actually wants. And no. it's very important as the coach to understand your player, learn your player, and, and, and figure out how, you know, ask them directly. What kind of communication do you like? How many, what do you like, what information do you want to go onto a match board with? What, uh, do you like plans? Do you like statistics? Do you like me to share statistics? Or do you want me to just tell you this, you know, cover this side or cover that side? Um, what happens if I give you a statistic and the guy, Let's just say for argument's sake, it's a 60-40 statistic and I give you the 60 and the guy, your opponent plays the 40 on, on that day. You know, where, where do we stand on that? You know, and it's very, very important on any time that you're doing some, any kind of analysis, it's got to be emotionless. Any analysis with emotion is going to be poor analysis. And that's my opinion on that. 
And so I, from listening to you, albeit it will depend on the player you're working with, you are a fan of the the updated data analytics that have come into our sport the last few years. Yeah, I mean, it's there's very little data that is clear cut. There's a lot of data that is out there. Um, I mean, I get tons of data all the time and I get, uh, I mean, inundated frequently with people starting up new data programs. You know, one thing that we have to remember is the guys that we're, everybody is, is getting data. So if you can get, uh, help your player to have better instincts and to trust their instincts, that sort of can negate any data because we're playing against the best in the world. So uh, if, if my player, let's say I'm serving the do side, I couldn't even tell you, oh, I go 60, 40 T to wide. You know what I mean? Because that could happen today. But tomorrow I could feel it more the other way. So there's not, patterns can be strong, but you have to understand that patterns can all be changed and everybody's getting the different data. So it's very, very important to, 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 have a, to, to have, go back to what I said earlier, to have skills, to be able to trust your IQ and have an IQ that can, that can, you know, that can react on instinct. But doesn't it depend on where you get your data from? So sure. if, you're, if you're getting your data from a generic, a generic place that everybody's getting, whereas there's, there's lots of players out there now, and I have to shout out my, Mike James, a, a friend of mine who is, is working extremely hard in that field. I know he's, he's helping out Holger Rune right now. That data is then specific to your player. So it's it, right. and, and can be used. And I know when Mike was helping out Igor Fiontech, their, their team wanted the data for player development reasons. They actually, right. didn't, they actually didn't want it for scouting reasons. Okay. It, was, it was actually used. All the data was eager specific. Right. So, that, so that then at age 19, she's still in a big developmental part of her part of her tennis. It then helped helped focus the content for the next for the next period of work. Whereas I guess, and, and I remember I know Mike won't mind me saying this. He worked with Stan Barinka, who was in his 30s, and actually he doesn't need it so much for his player development side of things, but he's then using it from scouting, from a scouting point of view. Correct, you know, so yes. It, it can be used in used in different ways, but it, right. it, the, the, the thing that I see is there's so many blurred lines on, on what is what and what's defined as this and what's defined as that. Whereas if you're doing it from a personal standpoint or you've got your own personal person giving you that, you can make the criteria for, for the information that you're being given much, much clearer. Absolutely. So, so there you've, you've, you've hit brilliant points on both of those. So I, uh, myself and uh, Jay Berger is the, and myself work with Riley. Um, <laughs> And we tend to use the information much more on our player development side, yeah. you know, yeah. so, so to, to bolster our cases, we do use it for scouting stuff, 
but if I had to give a number, I'd probably say it's 70, 30. So sort of, we, we want the numbers on Riley. What, what are, what are, what are his opponents sort of seeing from him uh, that we can do a better job on, you know, on, on the practice court of, of getting him better at which, where, where, which skills do we need to improve on? Which patterns can we do better? You know? Yeah. How, how good and how high can Riley or Pelka go? Let me let me share a quick story. And this is uh, Mark Hilton, if you're listening, and Lloyd Glasspole and Liam Brody. We were at a challenger event back 2016, maybe, and Riley was there. And I said, this guy is a guaranteed top 50 player. And at the time, he wasn't that good. He was big, right. he had a big serve. And they were like, no way, you can't do this, you can't do that. I said, if you serve like that and you've got a bit about you, a bit of coordination, which he did, you're going to be top 50. Obviously, he smashed that. He's, he's, he's well on his way. How good do you think he can be? He most definitely can be a top tenner. He, he plays a brand of tennis that is exceptionally scary to play against when he's in the correct frame of mind. And... There's nobody that, nobody on any real surface that is scary for him because yeah. he, I mean, he played Nadal in Indian Wells, played a great match, lost 7-6, seven, 7-6 six, seven, six, and had chances both sets to win the set. And that's as slow a hard court as you can possibly get. So we were talking off air, you know, how, how good could he be? And I said, I think he will honestly be at his very best in 18 months to two years time. Uh, and that's just growing maturing, learning your trade and being better. But, I mean, you, you look at some of the results he's put up already. I mean, people go, oh, surely he's looking forward to the grass court season and he plays not his thing. The guy made the semifinals of Rome last year. Yeah. You know, he made the, the final of uh, Canada last year. So he's already proven that he can play on the biggest stages and he's, he's got wins over a lot of good players. So once he gets more used to being in the ranked in the top, being seated at the top, uh, he's going to be, he's very dangerous because he's, he's scary on all levels. And I have to ask you about another player who you worked with for a time. We saw him coming through, you know, Chung, and it was, this guy's so good. Look how well he hits the ball. He's obviously been very unfortunate with injuries, has been off the scene for a couple of years. How, how good was he? I mean... I started with him at, in the end of 2017. He came out in 2018 and uh, obviously had his famous run through to the semifinals of Australian Open. Uh, and then people kind of think, oh, what happened to him? That was the last thing he did. Well, no, because he had such severe foot injuries. Um, he actually also made the quarterfinals of Indian Wells. He made the quarterfinals of Miami. Uh, and then his back started, obviously, to play up. But, uh, you know, he's just very, very unfortunate with injuries. But he was a very special tennis player. And I mean, the way he could move, the way he could hit the ball. And there was, he played at, at times when he played well. He was the fastest I've ever seen. Uh, his absorption skills, uh, you know, his, he could, he could turn defense into offense very, very quickly. And that's for me is often a, a good litmus test of how good a player is, is how quickly they can go from defense to offense. And he could, he could do it all. And people saw, you know, oh, he's such a great ball striker, but he had really good high level of intangibles as well. He could slice, he could come in. He knew when to, to come in. You know, he, I mean, he, he played a match when I first started with him. It's a funny story is he, uh, 
he wanted to really change his serves. I said, okay, well, my first question is, is are you ever going to serve a volley? He said, absolutely not. So I was like, okay, fine. So then we obviously based his serve on being a slightly more up and down motion uh, and giving him space so that we, he could be more offensive on his ball after the serve. So, you know, if the guy had a good return uh, and he playing a match a couple of years, whatever, you know, later, maybe three, four months later, and he served and volleyed. It was the spot on perfect time to serve and volley. And he came off the court. I said, what the hell was that? You said you're never going to serve a volley. He goes, yes, but the guy was going to, he was just chipping every single return. So I was like, well, and that's the kind of high intelligent uh, tennis IQ that really set him apart. I mean, he was, if you ever want to watch a great match, go watch the match he played against Djokovic in the Australian Open in the, in the fourth round. It was incredible tennis. Yeah, and it felt like he was, he was the next thing. You know, it felt like he was already, well, he was competing with those guys. Yeah, I mean, he got to 19 in the world. And uh, I mean, he, at 18 years old, broke the top 100 didn't like his forehand, so it took three or four months away from the game and try and changed his forehand grip completely. You know, that's the kind of that's a different mentality completely to mm. nothing you've ever seen before. Can he get back after being out for so long? It's going to be very hard. I hope he can. Uh, I know he's starting to tr- slowly train now, and I hope his body is good, but uh, he's missed. He's uh. He was a very well-liked guy and a lot of people liked his brand. So I, I really hope for it there for his sake that he gets back. I, I hope so. I Nev, I wanna wanna move on. I, I wanna move on to my my final little bit. I'd just like to ask you as much as anything else from a personal side before we do our quick fire round at the end. And as I said earlier, alluded to earlier, I don't know if I ever said thank you, but I did love the work that. I did reviews for. We had a great time. We had a and, great time. And I loved it. And, and, and genuinely, I can, it does not surprise me in the slightest to see the success you've had. I tell people all the time the positivity, the simplicity. You know, those were two words that I absolutely remember from my time working with you. And I remember you sending me a message. I was having a tough time. And you sent me a message that said, um, form is temporary, class is permanent. Yeah. And, and it, and it was such a lovely message to get, you know, from someone you weren't necessarily being paid to work with me, but you always, you always looked out for me. So thank you. And I, and I mean that, you know, you've, you've had a, had an influence on me as a player, but more than that, had an influence on me as a coach. So it's well, kind so, of you to say, thanks, Dan. No, and I, and I, and I mean it, but the, the one thing that I do remember from that time, and you were, you weren't far off just stopping playing. But I remember you telling me, traveling's not for me. I've done my traveling. I've done my playing. And then all of a sudden, I was like, he's working with who? Kevin Anderson. Surely that's going to take some traveling. So how's the traveling? How's, how's the reality of life away from family? You know, how long can that go for? And what's, what's next five, 10 years for, for Neville Godwin? Yeah, good question. Um, actually, at the time, yes, so I was definitely done with traveling. I spent 10 years at home. Uh, I've got two boys. My eldest has just started university this year. Wow. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, my, my youngest is uh, he's at a high school, so and he's actually at boarding school. So, you know, there was the time was right for me to take on a, a different challenge. And uh, my family were incredibly supportive of it. I 
it was there's there's obviously there's always moments that are difficult but one thing i've learned is that this kind of is the the space i i enjoy being in and this the space i feel like i belong in and uh that's why the 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 traveling is is kind of like a byproduct of it and um it's just something that i do it's uh, i i travel for 30 to 25 to 30 weeks a year but the the rest of the time i'm at home and i'm full time with my kids my yeah. wife my my family and you know it's we we have a good time and they they are really super supportive of me so what's next um i i, I mean i'm going to do this while I, while i love it and um I, I, I'm going to, I mean, I have no plans to not be in tennis. So it's, uh, I always want to be in tennis. It's what I know is what I love. Uh, there's no greater feeling than helping somebody that wants, wants to get better. And, um, whether it be on a, a forehand for a, uh, a 70 year old or whether it be on a teaching a, a, a five-year-old how to run and hit a, hit a hit or, you know, hit a backhand or just, just to serve. This it's such a reward. It can be such a rewarding job. And uh, if you have the knowledge and you have the desire, I think it's, it's one of the best jobs in the world. Absolutely. And what's next for tennis? Is, is, tennis, oh. is tennis in a good state? Is tennis, do we have to be careful? It seems to me Grand Slams are in a good place. However, I think, I think Grand Slams are... Careful. I think Grand Slams are in a good space. I think they have enough money. There's enough money in the sport right now to to manage it for a while. We are going to miss the big three when they just decide to call it a day. I think we have enough future stars. I mean, particularly on the women's side, I think Shriantek is is unbelievably exciting, uh, and she, I think she she is that good that she can just about she could dominate for as long as she wants to. Coco Golf, uh, Coco Golf as well. Golf, she's. She I agree close. with that. She's also going to be very good. Um, on the men's side, I think we've got, you know, a couple of guys that when they start winning more, you know, you really have Sitsipas, you have Medvedev, you have Zverev, you have Alcaraz coming through, you have Team. These guys are. There's a little bit of scar tissue there from uh, from the big guys. But I think when they start winning, then they might just get a taste for it. And I think that we could be in for something pretty special because there's a very, pretty big crop of next young guys. How special is Carlos Alcaraz? Because I'm, I am a massive fan and I, and I strongly believe we're looking at multiple, multiple Grand Slam champion. He's, he's special. There's, there's nothing that he cannot do. He, he's got it all on, on, on every level. So, you know, He's he's gonna be he's gonna be a fun one to, for the next couple of years, and he's he's got a great character for the game as well. He's uh, people love him. He did he does an amazing job with people. He does an amazing job with the media, and I think he's 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 the real deal. That's for sure. Are you ready for our quick fire round? Let's go. What does control the controllables mean to you? Well, it means it's uh, the things that that are within your realm of. Uh, doing or using you know control those things the things that that are out of your realm of possibles leave them alone they've got nothing to do with you basically in a nutshell what other people think of you has got nothing to do with you absolutely roger or rafa roger atp cup or davis cup atp cup 
Are you a PTPA fan, supporter or not? 50-50. They've got to start doing something. They've said they gave us a promise and then they've disappeared. I agree. There, there hasn't been any substance from an, an initial big uh, uh, presentation. Forehand or backhand? Forehand. Serve or return? Serve. Singles or doubles? Singles. Favourite Grand Slam? Got to be Wimbledon. Medical timeout or not? Won a match. One rule change in tennis. I'm going to go controversial here. Left Lefties should start the... the the, the current ad side should be their first court, should be actually the deuce court. Well, that's interesting. I don't know why it's never been thought of before. Why? Three of the current point ending, a uh, game ending points are played to the current ad side. Uh, lefties' favorite. Lefties. lefties. Exactly. So if you just turn the court around, it makes it all fair. Hey, not easy after 170 podcasts to come up with something unique for that answer. <laughs> well, well done. And do you know what? I agree. Bloody left. Yeah, wait, wait, till you, wait till you actually think about it more. I promise you, it's going to get in your head now. What's, what are those lefties going to say? They hate the idea. They, uh, every single time I, I suggest it, they, they, they just say, you should keep your mouth shut. <laughs> and who's, who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? Go with Robbie Koenig, the ATP sports uh, sports commentator, uh, tennis commentator. He's absolutely on my list, and I would love. I, I, I'm friends with him somewhere, some social media, but to have the hookup would be amazing. And we've had a couple of guests reach out and say he has to get Riley on as well. So over dinner, maybe sometime you can drop that in as well. I'll throw it in there for you, Nev. It's great to see you. Um, great to see you. A massive thanks, you know, to, to to get you coming on. And I uh, apologies for my voice, but hopefully the listeners won't hear my voice anyway. You've come with all your pearls of wisdom. Big, big pleasure. Good luck to you and Riley over the grass court season. Cheers, Dan. Thanks so much, mate. Nice to see you. Cheers, Nev. Uh, big thank you as ever for, for listening and, of course, to, to Neville, you know, giving his time up. To, to share his experiences with us. And yeah, I, I unfortunately don't have Vicky next to me. Uh, life has been busy. Summer is well underway here at the Soto Tennis Academy. And as I'm doing this, it's it's pretty late at night, actually. And uh, unfortunately, we've been unable to do this together. So I apologize that you stuck with me. But I would like to share just a couple of my thoughts. And you know, I think my, my takeaways from Neville, you know, my first takeaway, I think at times we can think a coach has their philosophy, has their way, and it's kind of my way or the highway. And what I what I love about Neville when I worked with him, but certainly seeing as he has had the success with the players that he has worked with at the top end of the ATP Tour, is it is a very player-led approach, you know, and it's him adjusting to what is needed you know, every player out there has their own identities. They have their own ways. You know, they have their own contexts to why they do things, why they like to play a certain way, why they like to practice a certain way. And and certainly the further up in coaching you go 
the more that you have to make sure that you are providing what the player wants, whilst not being afraid to challenge them and not being afraid to bring in new things. And that's something that certainly Neville has done very well. Interestingly, a big success with a couple of the bigger guys and you know who got maybe not not the same game style but similar game style but then being able to adapt to a Hyung Chung the way that he plays as well so that stuck out to me the 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 second bit on that is making sure the player is has absolute clarity of what they're doing and as we go through that journey and I always like to think of it a little bit like baking a cake and as you're as you're in the younger age groups you're very much giving them all the ingredients, give them everything that you possibly can, coaches, you know, give them drop shots, give them slices, give them kick serves, slice serves, give them the possibility of serve volleying, drive volleying, uh, moving back, playing moon ball, playing heavy, playing flat, you know, give them as many tools as you possibly can. And then as you start to bake your cake, you need to know what's the recipe. And is the recipe for a lemon drizzle cake, is the recipe for a carrot cake, you know, and you're picking out the right ingredients to be able to bring that recipe together to make the perfect tennis player. And and that's certainly something that I really remember with Neville as well. He was big on talking about the strengths and using the right ingredients that work for your game style. And 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 I and I often get asked what sort of age is that and I think it's a little bit level dependent but ultimately I think around the age of 14 you're starting to really have clarity on the way you're, you want and are trying to play the game. You know and I like to break that down into serve and return. You know how are you holding serve? You know and I think that's quite an uncompromising thing. You know for you in the men's game and the women's game you need to be holding your serve a majority amount of time so how are you doing that and how what is your identity in order to do that you'll change the tactics within that against different players maybe serve body against the person with a big wingspan somebody who goes to the chip return maybe you bring in a serve and volley tactic but ultimately that is uncompromising whereas in your return game you have to be a little bit more reactive to what they are sending down at you. And I often use the example with players of Riley Opelka. If you're playing against him, you can't have much of a game identity other than just, can I touch the ball and get it back in the court? Where you play somebody else, then second serve returns. You know, you might look to dominate with speed with your forehand or take the backhand early. And I think these are the things that you've got to start to really bring through as as clarities from 14 years and older is certainly if you are going to be an international tennis player as you're moving through. So that, that stuck out to me. How normal he is sticks out to me. It's a while since I've spoken to Nev, but yes, he's a normal guy. He's a normal dude, family guy. Yeah, he's been working at the top end of the game. And I think that gives us all hope. You know, you don't have to be this 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 rock star, this movie star to be a, a top tennis coach in our game. And, and my last one, which I loved, absolutely loved, and I, I never thought of it, uh, never thought of it before, but I can't stop thinking about it now. You lefties out there, you've been getting away with it for years, having those big points played on the ad side. Let's get the lefties starting on the ad side, their first point of every game, so that things are a little bit fairer. And what he means by that is we know that the wide serves 
is the most used serve. I think it's wide serve is about 56% in professional tennis. And then the body serve and T-serve is made up from there. Uh, so the wide serve that the lefty uses on the ad side, your big points, your 30-15s, 40-30s, 30-40s, all of these points, you've got those advantage, the game-ending point to be played on the side. That's why I've lost to so many lefties in my time. I want those matches back. I want us to change that rule. I love it, Neville Godwin. Thank you for bringing it to us. And thank you to all of you if you're still listening. Yeah, you guys are the real hardcores. Thank you. Lots of great guests. We've, I just last night, I spoke to Ken Skupski, his retirement party, his retirement podcast. That is not a one to be missed. And many more great guests to come. Oh, go on, I'll tell you one. Pat Cash. That's a bizarre one when I'm texting him on my WhatsApp. But Pat, he's fiery. I haven't spoke to him yet. It's in the pipeline. He spoke very openly about his thoughts about Nick Kyrgios during Wimbledon. I'm looking forward to exploring that and many more things with him. We will be back next time. But until then, I'm Dan Kiernan. We are Control the Controllables. Control the Controllables.